Welcome back, listeners. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the EcoSIF podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and equitable world. If you enjoy this podcast, you can help support the work that we are doing by making a donation at ecosiv.org. Today, Jeremy Fackenthal talks with Dr. Shelley Yael Dennis about her new book, Edible Entanglements, A Political Theology of Food. Anyone concerned about food justice and global environmental politics should read this book, which brings together the disciplines and discourses of political theology, new materialism, nutritional science, climate science, and political ecology. Jeremy and Yale have a fascinating conversation about the politics of food, the concept of sovereignty in the work of Carl Schmidt and Giorgio Agamben, the food sovereignty movement, sustainable food systems, Karen Barad's philosophy of agential realism, Catherine Keller's Tehomic theology, and where she sees hope for the future. And now, here's Jeremy and Yael. I am very pleased to be here today with Dr. Shelley Yael Dennis. Um, Dr. Dennis, or Yael, is Faculty Chair of Health Sciences and Sustainability at Rio Salado College in Tempe, Arizona. Uh, Dr. Dennis earned her medical degree at University of Illinois in Chicago, uh, and then later went on to uh, earn a doctorate from Drew University. Um, and Yael is author of the book Edible Entanglements on a Political Theology of Food, um, which I think is a fantastic book and highly recommend to all of our listeners. Um, and so today we're going to dive into the contents of the book uh, and talk about food sovereignty in the context of uh, political theology today. So Yael, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. I'm really excited to talk with you all this morning. Good. So my first question is, um, why did you write this book and why is it a significant book for our current global climate? Um, that's a really interesting question. Why I wrote this book goes back almost 30 years and why it's relevant to the current situation is obviously a more contemporary answer than that. Um, when I was a third year medical student back in 1990, I um, got pregnant with my first child. And at that time, the wisdom was that you had to take just a tiny little bit of folic acid in order to prevent spina bifida, which is the condition where the spinal tube doesn't close. And now, now we don't need to do that anymore because food is enriched with folic acid because you need this minuscule amount in the first 28 days of pregnancy. If I took the, the accumulated amount of folic acid needed and spread it on your dresser, you would not even feel like you needed to dust. <laughs> it's that tiny of an amount, but it makes a difference in neural development that you can see with your eyeballs. Mm. You don't even need a microscope. You can see that the neural tube has not closed and there's a bulge at the base of the spine and sometimes near the next. So you can see these bulges with your eyes. And I happen to be, as you mentioned previously, a medical student at University of Illinois in Chicago, which is on Chicago's near west side. Um, a very impoverished area with a high percentage of my patients being on public aid and receiving food stamps. And I, as a student, and I also had a, a job there as a lab tech previously, I did my shopping in that neighborhood. 
I didn't have a car and I knew I, on the way to the train, I would stop at the grocery store. And I knew that the food I had access to in the neighborhood was subpar to say the mm. least. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was experiencing, I now would refer to as a food desert. There just yeah. wasn't nutritious food available. And I couldn't help but wonder if this tiny little bit of folic acid were causing a problem I could see with my eyes, what more subtle developmental issues might be caused in my patients mm. if they had no other access to food besides the food that was in that surrounding neighborhood. And at that time, welfare reform was a topic of conversation. Um, there was an urge or a push to sort of reduce food stamps, sort of minimize WIC. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of this political rhetoric that I was listening to in the radio on my way back and forth to the hospital was very connected with a sort of Christian right sense that pe- you know, the Lord helps those who help themselves, which mm. was actually Benjamin Franklin and not Jesus. Um, who said that incidentally Uh, so I I just I was very perplexed by that combination Um, it seems to me that every socio-political arrangement makes a theological statement Mm -hmm. and the theology that I read in biblical text did not align with the socio-political statement of not feeding poor people that seemed to be really at odds for me yeah and Over time, I have realized that food is an extremely important driver of climate change as well. So the industrialized food system that puts subpar nutrition in grocery stores and creates food deserts also contributes about 30 to 35% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And as I started to learn about political theology, which is a discourse where the sort of blurring of the boundaries between theological statements and political statements is studied intentionally, I started learning about the concept of sovereignty, and Carl Schmitt said, sovereign is he who decides upon the exception. And the exception usually comes about in the case of an existential threat or an emergency. And climate change and starvation are both exactly such existential threats that call for sovereignty. But on the flip side, if you read Giorgio Agamben, he would make the case that exercises of sovereignty actually increase vulnerability instead of decreasing it, which seemed to be what I was seeing in in the near west side of Chicago. So it's a very long answer, but it's all of those things stretched out, started 30 years ago, and now, you know, we're having these pretty intense catastrophic weather events. So sovereignty is obviously an important term uh, for the book in general and also in discussions of food justice today. Can you talk about how the notion of sovereignty entered into food politics? Yes. There is a food scholar by the name of Akhil Gupta, who I did draw upon in my work, who would argue that actually the concept of sovereignty arose in the context of global food trade, sort of towards the end of monarchy and as we were developing into nation states. So it was in order to legitimate the rule of a king over a distant territory that sovereignty arose, and that rule was necessary in order to extract food and other resources from colonial territories. So sovereignty of the nation state and sovereignty of the king, both were sort of intertwined with the need to access food. As the nation state project developed, that concept of sovereignty we now see being challenged by transnational corporations, which we can say more about momentarily. But in order to fight back against 
the exercise of sovereignty by powerful nation states against other nation states or by transnational corporations and multilateral agencies against all of the nations. There is a group called the Food Sovereignty Movement. It, it goes by different names, such as the Campesino, a Campesino Movement, or the Lamas Peasant Movement in Brazil. And they talk about something that they call food sovereignty, or the legitimate right they have to grow and consume food that is meaningful in their cultural context. Mm -hmm. And they're very resistant to having agribusiness and um, high input methods imposed upon them by transnational corporations. So. Sovereignty, it seems at one point, was necessary for the trade in food, and now it is a little bit eroded by the trade in food, but it becomes a very lively conversation, again, in these sort of resistance movements, very, very profoundly democratically rich resistance movements. Yeah, good. So your book begins with a chapter on uh, describing Schmidt and then uh, Walter Benjamin and their understandings of sovereignty and then critiques of sovereignty. Can you walk us through that discussion and how that is sort of central for the argument that you build? So in our current moment, I think to say that we are politically polarized would be stating <laughs> an obvious fact. We are yeah. <laughs> very politically, politically polarized. And that has a lot to do with a widening income gap, outsourcing of labor, and the ways in which transnational global capital almost compels mass migration. And this is a paradox because transnational global capitalism touts itself as the way to eliminate poverty, yet it seems to be creating more of it. Mm -hmm. It touts itself as the way to promote peace, but it seems to be creating more unrest. And the proposed solutions that we currently have on the table really resonate with the approaches of Schmidt and Benjamin. On the right, we have, you know, build the wall. And that would be more the Schmittian perspective of secure this border or secure this outside boundary. Yeah. And then we have the, the um, people more towards the progressive and towards the left, which is, you know, erase the boundaries and open up to everybody, which would be more along the lines of a Benjaminian, although I don't think entirely Benjaminian, but along the lines of a Benjaminian sort of progressive solution. Mm -hmm. So the, the rise of nationalism that we see right now also very much resonates with the rise of nationalism that was occurring in the 1930s, 1920s, when Schmidt and Benjamin were writing. Mm -hmm. So... While both Schmidt and Benjamin can be found in our current polarization, I would say that neither of their proposed solutions, and, and even today, the solutions on the right and on the left, while both parties identify a certain set of threats to our existence and our welfare, and neither of the absolutes or the, term, the absolute terms that they use have proven historically to be satisfying solutions to the problems that they identify. Mm -hmm. Re-examining the disputes between Schmidt and Benjamin may help shed light on our own polarization, and that distance of time may help us reflect on that polarization in a different way that helps us hear the legitimate concerns of the other side and work towards different solutions that have maybe not yet been tried. Mm -hmm. So wrapped up in that is um, what you describe as a power shift away from nation states and toward both transnational corporations and multilateral agencies. Um, so this, I think, has to do with the development of the term food sovereignty as opposed to food security as well. But then can you talk about how this notion of the sovereign operates within that shift? 
Yes, and the shift, again, it's, it's a very paradoxical appearance of sovereignty in food politics. So basically, sovereignty as it is exercised by transnational corporations and multilaterals is what might best be called a super sovereignty. Mm. Back up a moment. In Schmidt's perspective, when a, when a sovereign decides upon the exception, what that means is all of the laws are suspended. Right. And the sovereign figure is above the law and outside of that system and has the ability to suspend the law. In the case of a super sovereign, those agents have never been within the law to begin with. They have never been a part of that legal framework in the same way that the Schmittian sovereign has. They are already outside the nation state. I would argue that that makes them the sovereign par excellence in being outside of that system Mm -hmm. and being able to impose their will unilaterally upon others in the ways that as developing nation debt was restructured and as it was restructured, transnational agribusinesses were able to impose high input agricultural methods on developing nations. So that's the sort of super sovereignty that is active. They don't acknowledge themselves as sovereigns. They don't claim sovereignty. They claim to be promoting democracy, but they operate in very anti-democratic ways. Mm-hmm. They do what they're doing because there's a state of emergency that warrants suspending agricultural practices and economic laws within developing countries. Right. When they do that, they, as we've already discussed, contribute to the polarization of economics. They contribute to that widening income gap. Peasant farmers that we're talking about as the landless farmers or peasant farmers were not always landless. They had land. They have been dispossessed of their land in these structural adjustment programs or SAP. What happened is that the concept of food security was used in a way that violated norms and violated people's perceptions of human rights and what was best for them mm-hmm. and left them landless and without resource. The food sovereignty movement perceived that not only were the needs of peasant farmers not being met, but that the sovereignty of their nations was being eroded. So some writers in the global north will talk about the fiction of sovereignty, and they will point to the United States as a very fictional sovereign figure. And many of us from the global north would like to see sort of an end to sovereignty, or that would be the progressive wing on the left. Let's end sovereignty. Whereas in the developing nations, they would like a little sovereignty. They would like a little respect for the boundaries that they have. They would like the ability for their leaders to make decisions that are good for their country without interference from outside agencies. Yeah. So they've embraced the concept of sovereignty in a way that helps elucidate the nature of the problem and helps give people that decision-making power once again. That food security sort of implies that we can let go of democratic rule and democratic process. It's an emergency. We have to do this. Food sovereignty calls our awareness to the fact that people need to be empowered to make their own food choices in a very democratic way. (laughs) Yeah. So just to make that more concrete, one example of the state of exception on the political sovereign side could be, as you mentioned, Trump's sort of going around U.S. law to build a wall on the southern border. Then likewise, an example, and tell me if I'm getting this right. So it's an example of a state of exception on the side of transnational corporations or multilateral agencies would be 
like the IMF, going into other countries and explaining to them how to develop crops such that it props up neoliberal economics but doesn't actually benefit the people of that country. Is that Spot on, yes. So when the structural adjustment programs were imposed, farmers who were at one point subsistence farmers had small plots of land and were able to cultivate enough food for the family and maybe a little bit to sell, were told that they had to retool their farming operations so that they could produce cash crops instead. Mm. Cash crops were seen as the way to address the personal security of these farmers by giving them money. Problematically, A, you can't eat money, and B, um, yeah, so it's, it's just not very satisfying. No, no. And B, the high input methods required that farmers get into more debt, not less debt. It depleted soil and required more irrigation. It did not enrich the soil and reduce the need for irrigation as promised. Yeah. So many farmers lost their land because they were in debt and could not pay off the debts for the high input equipment that they needed. Also, these high input methods require farmers to purchase seed every year. These are patented seeds. They can't save them. It would be illegal to save them. Whereas peasant farmers and subsistence farmers routinely save seed. That is sort of how they select cultivars of plants that do well in those soil conditions and in that irrigation and weather circumstance. And they were not allowed to do those things. And that was in the name of their security. And that is a suspension of the economic law at the time. They sort of imposed different economic laws in that structural adjustment program. And they also imposed different agricultural practices. Another example would be some of these countries did have tariffs on imported produce so that their farmers could get a good price on their own produce, Mm -hmm. which helped preserve the income that farmers needed. When the SAPs were introduced, those countries were no longer allowed to have tariffs. Countries that were already using high input methods and could produce billions of quantities of grain or whatever produce we're talking about could dump their surplus in those countries, further driving down the cost for farmers. So yes, those those are specific concrete examples of how the suspension of law in response to the concept of security operated. Yeah. And then also tied up with that and with the notion of transnational corporations influencing decision-making transnationally or across um, what we would see as municipal boundaries. You, uh, um, I love this part. You paraphrased Derrida's assertion by saying that there is no single founding decision and no single founding decision-maker in relation to these corporations and multilateral agencies contributing to the problems of the food system. Um, and it strikes me that this is this rings true for climate change in general as well. So I wondered if you could unpack that statement um, and sort of lay out what the implications of that sort of messiness or non-originary means come from. Yes, absolutely. So, um, and it is messy. It's very complicated. So there is no one person we can we can convince that will fix this all for us. There is no one decision we can make differently that will fix this all for us. There are numerous decisions, which makes it messy on the one hand, but also means we have almost infinite opportunities for a change. Um, And the fact that things are perpetually changing also helps. We're not irreversibly stuck in this system. This is a system that we contribute to through decisions large and small, and it's a decision that we can shift through decisions large and small. So on the one hand, there's no single target for intervention. 
And if you personally, Jeremy, were to try to hit all of those targets, you would exhaust yourself. Mm -hmm. But there is probably a target for intervention that is within your reach. And the same goes for everybody listening. For me, it's food. For someone else, it may be water. And for someone else, it may be transportation. If you happen to be a city planner listening to this, transportation is probably the thing you need to work on. And then second, food. Mm -hmm. And you need to promote probably urban agriculture and create nested food hubs. But there's no single, there's no single solution. And I think that actually is the biggest thing I can say that would counter any claim to sovereignty is there's no single solution to any problem. So the border wall as one example, of course, a barrier of some sort is probably something that would be needed if people can just waltz across the border willy-nilly and tend to do so. But that alone is not a solution. And it does not address the myriad reasons that people feel a need to waltz across the border willy-nilly. We notice that Canadians are not doing that, generally speaking. We don't, we aren't building a northern wall. What is different in Canada and how do we contribute to, by means of structural adjustment programs, in fact, and by mm -hmm. means of imposing high input agriculture south of our border, how do we contribute to economic situations south of the border that are driving immigration. We also need immigration in our country. The model of capitalism requires growth and our population is not growing. We're at about net zero population, but we consume a lot and capitalism requires growth. So we need additional people to contribute to our economy. Yeah. So yeah, there's no one person that can fix it, but we can all do something. And that means everything. Nice. Yeah, so that begins to lead into um, your arguments at the end of the book, which um, I think are brilliant. Before we get to that, I do want to dive into one particular chapter where you unpack thinkers related to what could be called new materialism mm -hmm. to uh, hopefully remind us that food is connected to bodies. And so our bodies matter uh, it, it, within this political theology of food. Um, I wondered if you could just help us unpack or, or explain Karen Barad's agential realism. Uh, and I mean, so that plays a, a role later on in the book in um, sort of rethinking sovereignty around popular sovereignty. But can you unpack what agential realism means for Barad um, and maybe its tie to quantum mechanics and then, and then how it's applied here? Yeah, so agential realism really is a statement that things do not pre-exist one another. Things, I, I think a Buddhist might realize, might recognize this as co-arising. Hmm. We constitute one another. There is no Yael Dennis apart from the material discursive practices in which I have engaged my entire life and that produce me the way I am. And food would be to go back to the beginning of this story, that agential realism and that co-arising of human bodies in the context of a food system is exactly what concerned me 30 years ago. We are not objects. We're 50% genetic coding to do certain things and 50% environmental. And the environment is not just how our parents raise us. It is, are we exposed to lead in Flint, Michigan? Because that's going to change our brain if we are. We are not going to be able to live our fullest potential if we're exposed to lead? Did we have adequate nutrition? Because if we didn't, we're not going to live our fullest genetic potential. We become in those systems in a very 
complex way and we're very entangled with one another. And I, I know I cite this source in this chapter, studies have been done on the nutrient quantity found in a variety of foods and taken as a whole in a 50 year time span between the middle of the 20th century and the very tail end of it, nutrients were demonstrably depleted in the soil. And that has everything to do with how we farm. Right. And we farm in ways that deplete the soil and also select for cultivars that grow fast, but cannot necessarily take in nutrients at the same rate at which they grow. So we're collecting food that looks great on the outside, but does not contain nutrients on the inside. And that does, in short, contribute to the obesity epidemic that we see in the global north. There is a line of thought that would suggest that people are becoming obese in part because they're starving from micronutrients that have been depleted from their food. Mm-hmm. So to connect this back or to go back a layer, th- these were all of the things that I would observe. Why Karen Broad was so helpful is she took something like quantum mechanics and the way in which scientists have discovered that an electron, depending on how you study it and how you arrange the equipment, can appear as a wave or as a particle, but never really appears as both. And it's very dependent on how you structure that equipment. That is true for an electron, and Karen Barad's argument, and the argument of most quantum physicists, is that quantum physics is true at all levels. Some of the variation that you might notice in an electron gets sort of canceled out. Like, I pretty much appear as a particle, but I may have a wave-like quality too by matters of size. At a larger scale, things do tend to follow a more Newtonian direction, but we remain constituted by what Karen Barad calls apparatuses or the experimental equipment. She also enlightens us in the way that our social practices that we engage in, the ways that we grow food and the ways that we grocery shop can be viewed as apparatuses. She says apparatuses leave marks on bodies. All of these practices that we engage in leave marks on bodies. Not all of these marks are bad. I'm very well nourished. That's been very good for me. It's left good marks on my body. But if you happen to be living in sub-Saharan Africa right now, maybe it's leaving a less good mark on your body. If you happen to have a genetic predisposition to obesity and you're living in the global north, you're having a less good mark on your body. Karen Barad's agential realism gives me a theoretical perspective that helps me explain the things that I've been observing but couldn't find words to explain. Mm -hmm. And then this leads into those kinds of metaphysical shifts that need to take place sort of away from a Cartesian dualism of, of subjects and objects. Can you walk us through how this kind of metaphysical shift helps us address food crises and, and with it the climate crises in better ways? So shifting away from Schmidt's metaphysics and what he sort of based his ideas of the sovereign on, where does that get us? So where that gets us is it gets us away from a world that consists primarily and exclusively of external relations, where a farmer could decide to grow food in a certain way, and that food will always contain exactly the same nutrient content 
from crop to crop, year to year, and regardless of the soil conditions, weather conditions, packaging, shipping, and length of time it sits on a shelf. A more Newtonian perspective would lead you to think that food is a concrete object that does not change quite that much. However, it changes continuously. It is always changing. The ear of corn is different in the field, and it's different in some fields than others. It tastes different based on soil conditions, and it contains different nutrients throughout its life cycle from the field to your plate, depending on how it's processed in the interim. So if you buy it from a roadside stand directly from the farmer, it has more nutrients. If you have it in a can and it's been heated and it's been sitting around for a year and a half, it has fewer nutrients. So it gets us away from that sort of externally related metaphysics that misleads us into thinking that there might be a single solution that helps us complexify our approach. Thinking that there's a single solution and thinking that one specific approach will solve all the problems also leads us to a willingness to suspend laws and norms for the just outcome that we imagine will result. If we can get ourselves away from that notion, if we can disabuse ourselves of that delusion that any one solution will fix it all permanently, we would, I believe, be less inclined to do violence to one another and more inclined to reach across boundaries and divisions and recognize that not only is the Schmittian answer not the answer, neither is the Benjaminian answer the answer. Mm -hmm. There are multiple answers that can include varying amounts of their insights, but there are multiple answers and none of them merit suspending norms, especially not norms of care and civility. Yeah. yeah. So going towards um, atomic theology, sort of like Catherine Keller proposes, I think is a really beautiful thing. And because she does, she does something very unique, even in the field of political theology, she does something very unique. Most political theologians embrace a messianism of some sort. And they embrace a, a democracy to come in Derridian terms, or they embrace the, the future moment when all will be well. Mm -hmm. And I will say that a lot of that Carolyn Merchant would say is about reinventing Eden. It's about reconstituting some imaginary lost past. Right. That was perfect back when, and we're going to get there again in a sort of linear way. But what Keller helps us see is that chaos is the stuff of creation. She takes us back even further than Eden to where creativity begins with a God who hovers lovingly over the chaos and speaks a new world into being. So that means that we too can embrace this chaos. We can hover over the chaotic moment that we're living in without getting sucked into it. And we don't, we would probably best not take a violent approach since that's not the approach that the God that we are talking about would take to create everything that's here we would take a patient approach. We would not fear the chaos. We would not, in a sort of absolute way that we're gonna fear it and we're gonna block it away forever. We have the one solution, nor would we get sucked into it in a dissolute way. But as Catherine Keller says, between the absolute and the dissolute, we would remain resolute, that creativity remains possible. And to go to a gardening metaphor, we would compost the failures and the losses and we would, complete that cycle and recycle them into nutrients, new creation, instead of 
collapsing in despair, which I think a lot of us feel like doing about climate change, <laughs> right. um, or suspending laws in the hopes that suspending laws will lead to a good outcome, which so far hasn't seemed to happen. Right. That also sort of promotes another approach to politics that resonates with Paulina Ochoa Espejo's people as process that allows us to resituate ourselves across national and ethnic boundaries, across boundaries of might promote greater solidarity and less of a sense of charity. So in other words, we in the global north are not doing this for those in the global south, but we now realize that we are captive to the same systems and we are all being damaged in various ways by those systems. So we have an obesity epidemic. I think 35% of people in this country in the global north are obese. This leads to metabolic syndrome, high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease. People are dying prematurely and sick and not enjoying their lives. So we are also captive in these systems that are harming our bodies, and we can join together in a different way. There is a sense I get from many that we are privileged. We definitely have the privilege of having too much food rather than the tragedy of not enough food. And I don't mean to diminish that privilege in any way, but we often get in the sense of guilt that prevents us from really partnering with people. And I'm just going to say this, um, and it, it may not be a very popular thing to say, but I think we also perceive that we may have something to gain by embracing the system if we don't recognize the ways in which the system also harms us. Yeah. We feel we can temporarily go along with this because, well, you know, at least I get to eat, which is true, but we're also being harmed in the process. And I, I think the writing is on the wall. If you look at the widening income gap and you look at where we're headed with climate change, this approach is not working. We have sort of an urgent need to recognize that we're not on the precipice of greatness in the global north, we're on the precipice of disaster. Yeah. And we can do things, and I think, you know, not, not to be gloom and doom, we can do things and we must do things, must also realize our skin in the game. Mm -hmm. we, we can't be protected from those things. And I, I did, I think I wanted to go back to, you know, climate catastrophes for just a moment, because I think that is the risk that we face right now as climate catastrophes do pose threats to us. And we want our government to make good on its promise to keep people safe. We want FEMA to do their job. That's our federal government. In 2012, I believe, Superstorm Sandy, Occupy Wall Street became Occupy Sandy and actually did a much better job of distributing necessary foods and medications to needy people and people who were impoverished than FEMA did. There are important reasons for us to engage in profoundly democratic practices because we need to look out for each other in a way that a sovereign at the national or state level cannot do. Nonetheless, when these crises happen, we do call upon our leaders to take strong, decisive action. And I'm not suggesting they should not take strong, decisive action. I am suggesting we remember that both are necessary. Mm -hmm. So we talk about um, the notion of ecological civilization and as an organization, we like to think sort of 30 to 50 years into the future and then work backwards or backcast from that to look at sort of cross-sector steps or planning that can be done to move toward 
a better, more sustainable future within what we understand as the very real impending crisis uh, of climate change. Um, if you were to look sort of 30 to 50 years into the future related to food systems and food sovereignty, what is it that you would like to see or, or what is it that you could imagine? The best thinkers in this area, and I, I'm not claiming to be one, I'm claiming to parrot them and I can't remember all of their names <laughs> at the moment. That's um, fine. <laughs> they really suggest the direction we need to head in as far as food is nested food hubs. It would be foolish to suddenly abandon transnational global agriculture. It is responsible for feeding close to 70% of the planet. If not for artificial fertilizers, 40% of us would not be alive right now. And we do not have infrastructure to support more sustainable methods mm -hmm. at this moment. So to suddenly abandon that would not be reasonable or successful. Nonetheless, we do need to promote sustainably raised food one of the hallmarks of sustainably raised food would be that it would be close to you. So I'm, I'm living in the Phoenix area right now, and I, I do want to, for the moment, give a shout out to Maricopa County Food Coalition that is doing the type of work that I would imagine needs to be done, which is promoting a sustainable local food system. Great. We have organizations that participate like EcoCiv that are making that connection for us between sustainable food and health. They're calling attention to the connections that I was just making about health and our food system to our elected officials at the state and local level so that our near leaders are aware of the problems and working with farmers and farmers markets and unique venues for sales of local foods to promote a robust local food economy. So those are the types of things that need to happen in our food system. I, I like to avoid absolutes, so I don't really label myself as a vegan or a vegetarian or an omnivore or an anything. I really think, however, that the strength of that position is that I definitely don't define myself as a meat eater. Mm -hmm. I think we all need to eat a little bit lower on the food chain. That won't create an immediate impact on the amount of food that gets produced because 40% of our food ends up in a landfill anyway which to loop back around to Marco or Maricopa County Food Coalition, we also work in our food system on waste diversion. How do we get that food to never go to a dumpster to begin with, but instead to go to people who need the food? So I would encourage listeners to this podcast to become involved in those sort of grassroots on the grounds organizations and create relationships with your near neighbors on these issues as well. While you are, you know, of course, dependent on a transnational global food chain to bring your olive oil from Greece um, so, yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Or Southern California. Uh, or Southern California, or in my case, Cave Creek, Arizona. It still takes a trip. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So we have, we have a lot of local food. Arizona has a, a lot of agriculture. Um, so also shout out to our State Department of Agriculture. The folks over there are great. And they are really working hard to be part of the solution. And, Good local food economies as well. So yeah, nested food hubs, that, that does a couple of things. Um, it reduces the amount of CO2 emitted in transportation. Mm -hmm. It promotes your local economy. Local First has done the research to suggest that when you spend money in a transnational corporate chain, about 12% of that money remains in your local economy, whereas when you spend it with a local producer, uh, over 40% remains in your local economy. So it really grows a robust local economy when you shop with local producers and you know where the food came from. 
you you could just drive right over to that farm and take a look at how they're treating their their laborers, how they're treating their farm animals. Yeah. Finally, where um, and you may have just answered this question, but if you have anything to add, I would be really interested to hear. Where do you see hope for the future? I'm thrilled that you asked me that question. So I see hope for the future in many places. So not, you know, not only Marco, not only dedicated people that are doing this work, I see hope for the future in my own institution, Rio Salado College, that was 10 years ago committed to the concept of sustainable foods before this became a big academic thing. This was really ahead of the curve and groundbreaking at the time. They installed a garden on our campus, and that garden produces close to 10% of our produce that we eat in our sustainability cafe. Wow. So they, and they started a cafe that really preferentially purchased at the time from local vendors, although that's been increasingly difficult as this area has grown. We have fewer and fewer farmers because developers are purchasing the farm. Um, so I see hope in in institutions like mine that support that and have been supporting it for quite a long time. I see hope in organizations like Shemaim Be'aretz, which is a Jewish vegan movement that connect our deepest heartfelt spiritual and religious convictions with our daily food practices for the purposes of reducing suffering of farm animals and people and promoting good nutrition to say nothing of also being beneficial to the climate as a whole. I see a great deal of hope in that. I see hope in others, um, in the Unitarian Universalist movement's commitment to ethical eating and the amount of thought and intention people in that movement are putting toward eating lower on the food chain. And, you know, even, even you know, I'm in, the, I'm in the over 45 group of people but even among my over 45 group of people, I see an increasing number of people choosing to eat lower on the food chain, choosing to raise chickens in the backyard so that they don't have to participate in the cruelty that happens in, in the egg industry. So I see a lot of really great causes for hope. Good. And also this conversation, <laughs> this, yeah. this, to be able to have this conversation. Right. We're thrilled to, to have this conversation with you and to have read your book and um, have you on the podcast. Yeah, Gail, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we will post a link to um, where you can purchase the book, but it's available on Amazon, local booksellers, of course, um, if you have them. Um, Yael, thank you again. Thank you.